Welcome to the podcast. It's dedicated to making you a faster cyclist. The Ask a Cycling Coach podcast presented by Trainer Road. I'm Coach Jonathan Lee, and we have with us Orange Seal Off Roads, Alex, or actually, Alex, you have a new team name, and I just completely messed it up, didn't I? <laughs> Not yet. 15 days. Uh, okay, sounds good. Orange Seal Off Roads. Orange Seal Specialized for now is great. Yeah, <laughs> Orange Seal Specialized. <laughs> and Hannah, how about you? I don't know if any uh, any changes have happened there either. Uh, same as Alex, still Orange Seal Off Road team now. <laughs> awesome. Good to hear. Well, it's good to have Hannah Finchamp and Alex Wild with us pro mountain bikers. Hannah, you have, as we learned a couple episodes ago, experience on the triathlon side, even you cover all this stuff. We're going to talk about cyclocross. We're going to talk about lots of different things today. Uh, specifically, we're also going to get into the mentality and have just a, a broad ranging open discussion on how to get into a winning mindset and kind of like unlock the, the mindset that allows you to express all of the fitness that you have. It's going to be an interesting, interesting discussion. We'll talk about sprint versus endurance, training metrics, lots of stuff. But before we do that, I want to mention something really quick. We have uh, an awesome team here at Trainer Road that never gets to meet all of you through the podcast. There's a ton of people here, and they all are working on great things. And some of those people are designers. You can see some of their work, and I wanted to just mention this because some of you might be interested in cycling and design and that intersection and might want to get to know more people behind Trainer Road, and you can do so on Dribble. So Dribble is like a designer's, uh, you can kind of consider it like a designer's social network, but it's where they share the different things that they're working on. And if you're interested in that, you should check it out. Go to Dribble and look for Trainer Road. There's an account, and every week you'll see new things that are being made. Um, Babs and the rest of Babs is the one that makes a lot of the things that you see here on YouTube and everything else. And she's awesome. And uh, the the team works really hard on stuff. And I'd like to show it off every once in a while. So if you want to see it, check it out. Go to Dribble. And if you want to learn more about Trainer Road, of course, TrainerRoad.com. With that said, uh, Xterra Worlds. I came back from that. Congratulations to all the athletes that did that. I met a ton of you. Uh, super impressive. It was flash flooding. Uh, it was <laughs> crazy. I'm glad they closed down that swim cause that swell was ridiculous. Um, but just so impressed Brandon, our CEO, he's age group world champion. He won his age group. Uh, it was incredible. He was the first onto the bike and then he fell back a bit on the first lap. Then he kind of actually held even on the bike leaders for the second lap age group leaders. And then he ended up pulling it back on the run and winning, which is amazing. Um, uh, there's also a successful athletes podcast coming up with, uh, Teresa. And I met her as well there and she won her age group world championship. We have a tons, we have tons of people on the podium that use trainer road, super exciting. So trainer road athletes winning world championships and then also national championships at cyclocross stay tuned. There's going to be a successful athletes podcast with Jim Mueller. Uh, he's 74 years old. Raised his FTP from 250 to 270 after being plateaued for years with adaptive training, and he won national championships. Super cool. So, congrats to all the athletes uh, taking on all those awesome things. Uh, now, let's get started on a few things, and I'm just going to answer some basic principles or give some principles for something that represents a lot of questions that we got this week. You can submit your questions at slash podcast. And thank you for doing that every week. And we're getting a lot of questions from a lot of you, whether you're using trainer road or not, that are, you have events coming up. The majority of you are asking, how do I use trainer road to prepare for this event that I have at some point next year? Um, so I want to walk through the basics. If you don't have an event that you're training for, if you just want to train you, whether it's for health, whether it's just for enjoying the bike more, everything else use plan builder. And if you go in and say, I don't have an event, when you're going through the process, it will tell you, it'll ask you, do you have a race? And you can just say, I don't have an event. 
then it'll just ask you what sort of training you want to do. And then it will have you train until you don't want to train anymore. It's super easy. So use plan builder. If you do have an event also use plan builder, I'm getting a lot of people that are asking like, which plans do I put on my calendar? I'm like, there's a whole tool built out for that. You never have to even ask. So use plan builder. It will make it so easy. And then that way it will figure out when you should be in different training phases, which plans you should pick and the whole deal. Super easy. Another question is base training necessary. It's all sound like a broken record, but the answer here is use plan builder. Um, if you have more experience, it's likely going to give you less base or less, um, well, it depends on the situation. Plan builder takes care of it. I'm not even going to try to explain that plan builder just takes care of it. So if you have a question of, do I need more base training? Use plan builder. It'll figure it out for you. I think it's important for everybody to do base training, particularly at this time of year and to revisit it at different points in the season. Hannah, you're nodding. I'm sure that's what you're doing at this time of year, right? Completely agree. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Even if you're super fast and went to big peaks the year before, or if you're not very fast and you didn't get to peaks, it's still important to put in aerobic work. This is an aerobic discipline. So, uh, so yeah, super important. Um, but plan builder, once again, will take care of that. And then a lot of people asking which training volume should I pick? And the answer is, uh, almost always I would suggest athletes go to low volume. And I know that might be controversial for some, but start with low volume and then you can build up from there because low volume will allow you to add in riding as you wish, as you see fit. So then if you really like mountain biking or group rides with your friends or coffee shop rides or whatever it might be, you can still nail your training with precision. And then you can have all the other things still and not remove those from your life. And then also, even if you train a lot, try low volume and then work your way up to mid volume or high volume after a handful of weeks. If you feel like you want to do more, uh, just because starting at low, it might be more intensity or it might be more structure or more sustained work or more sweet spot work or more, I don't know anything than you're used to. So low volume is a good spot to start. Okay. With that, hopefully that answered about 80% uh, of the questions that we got this week. Uh, if you have more questions on that, of course, just go to trainerroadcom slash podcast. I'll read them and then we can adjust. So Mike says, I'm a 50 year old triathlete who's interested in starting cyclocross. Can you go over what a newbie needs to know equipment? He mentions that he would like to use his gravel bike, what to expect on race day, race format, any etiquette, someone should know, etc. Uh, Alex, you've raced cyclocross before, I believe. <laughs> Uh, once or twice back in 2017. There we go. I've <laughs> raced cross a bit, but Hannah, you have also raced cross. Let's start off with your tips. What tips did you give Mike? Yeah, I like this question. I was also a triathlete. I was a triathlete for 11 years. Um, I was a triathlete before I was a cyclist and the first just cycling discipline that I raced was actually cyclocross. Um, so I raced cyclocross for several years, went to nationals, gosh, I don't know, five or six times. Um, so yeah, this is a great question and it hits home for me. So first of all, I think your gravel bike is great. There's no need to, you know, invest in something super different. If you're just starting out, especially the biggest thing to note with the gravel bike is that the bottom bracket is a little bit lower. Um, so you might find that you're more likely to clip a pedal, not a big deal, just especially as a beginner, a really good, um, it's good to remember that so that you keep the outside foot down on the corners, which you should be doing anyways. But if you're tempted to pedal through them and you're going fast, you are more likely to clip a pedal than anyone else on a cyclocross bike. So just keep that in mind. 
Um, then, you know, more specific tips, you mentioned what to expect on race day, race format. I think the biggest thing for you going to these races is probably going to be pre-riding. It's so important to know what these courses are like because they're mazes and twisting and turning and cyclocross is almost like an obstacle course at times. So you need to know, you have to know what you're up against. And sometimes pre-riding can be complicated with cyclocross because there's so many races going back to back to back. And so it's not just like showing up to other events. A lot of the time you can't show up two days ahead and pre-ride because the whole course is in a park and it's just taped off. So check the schedule. There will be very specific times for you to go and pre-ride the course between races is usually the time. So they'll mark that off. Um, the other thing to note is you probably won't know how many laps you're doing when you start. So that can be a really confusing thing for beginners is how many are we doing? How many are we doing? Especially after you pre-ride and you're trying to think how many times do I have to do that stair run up? <laughs> well, it's unclear yeah. <laughs> and it's unclear for everybody. So, um, if you want a better idea, time your lap because it's going to be based on time. So you can time your pre-ride and try and guess how many laps, but it's all going to come down to that board. Uh, they're, they're going to have a little tiny board, just numbers. Every time you come through, it's going to count down. So that'll be your, your indicator of how many laps you have left. Mm -hmm. And then in terms of, you know, racing and training, I think the biggest things to focus on is as triathletes, we can really just set it and forget it. We get in one position in one pace, um, and, and that's it. And we are really good at some of those lower intensities and we can hold threshold and all those things a lot longer than many, but sometimes not as good as carrying speed in and out of corners. We really have to focus on momentum in cyclocross. It can seem like everyone's sprinting out of every corner if you're not good at carrying momentum, but actually unfortunately it might just be you um, because if everyone's carrying momentum and I can make that joke because it's been me is everyone's carrying momentum and you're having to stand up because you're breaking hard. So really focus on carrying that speed and momentum. Um, do train with some max efforts, not necessarily for those accelerations because hopefully you're carrying momentum, but because in cyclocross, there are times when you're going to be maxed out just to summit over this tiny little hill that's maybe only three pedal strokes, but you still need the ability to put in those max efforts. Mm -hmm. um, practice, of course, the mounting and the dismounting. And the last thing I'll say is have fun. You, you have to, if you're going to fit in with the cyclocross crowd, I feel like you have to let go of some of those inhibitions and just, and just go, like I said, I, was a triathlete. So I feel like I kind of can make the joke that triathletes tend to be a little bit more serious. <laughs> um, and cyclocross, it is the time to let your hair down. So do it and, uh, and, and fit in a little bit. <laughs> is I want to talk about the pre-riding step. Well, I mean, a lot of those steps too, but the pre-riding step, what did you find most helpful to focus on during pre-riding? Cause that's one thing that we get the question, not irregularly from listeners, okay, I'm pre-riding, but I'm just riding around on the course. Like, what am I supposed to be looking for? Yeah, that is a great question. I think, I think it's really going to vary from person to person. Um, I would kind of break it down into a few elements. So 
the part of the course that I feel the weakest in or the thing that I need to practice to gain some confidence. You know, maybe there's a sand pit and you want to ride that three times so that you know either this is going to be a struggle and this is how I'm going to approach it, or it's not, I'm just going to run it, which is completely fine as well. So identify your weakness, make a plan for it, identify your strength so that there can be one part of the course that you're looking forward to every lap because, wow, I feel great on this section. I'm going to pass someone here every single lap. And then also I just try and get a general layout for the course because in cross with so many turns and double backs and all these different things, you can get really lost. And especially if it's coming down to the last lap and you're duking it out with someone, it's really easy to start thinking, wait, is the next corner the finish? Or do I still have that run up? I don't remember. Or when do the barriers come? And so I just try and break it down at least. So I know which obstacle is next after sand pit comes barriers after barriers come run up after run up comes finish straight, something just super general like that. So that you can almost do these check marks as you're going through the course and saying, well, I'm after the barriers. So I'm halfway there. Um, and it can help that effort feel a little less intense as well. Cause you're marking time better than just how is it only six minutes into a 45 minute race? <laughs> yeah. In some regards too, it's best to pre-ride alone. If you're trying to really focus on uh, certain things, like for example, when I would want to pre-ride alone is when I am trying to unlock a specific line or section. Uh, however, I may want to follow somebody if I feel like somebody's really good through that section. Mm-hmm. However, in a lot of cases, it's not ideal to is like, if you're looking for line choice in general, like I just don't know where to go at all, then it can be really helpful to when you're pre-riding, wait for people that look like they know what they're doing and then try to follow them. And when I say follow them, I'm not just saying go where they're, you know, put your tires where their tires were, but I'm also saying follow them in terms of do what they're doing, like mimic them. Uh, it can really help. You'll see juniors do a really good job of that because they're used to, they take more time for skills and just playing around on their bike and having fun. Like, like Hannah said, so they're used to going through things and kind of doing what another person is doing to mimic it and learn a skill. But us adults hardly ever, we like, we stay kind of stodgy within our mold and we just do what we do. And then we hope that the course works with what we do. So during that pre-ride time, find somebody else that looks like they know what they're doing and then, uh, emulate everything they do. Uh, give it a shot. It's a, it's a good time to do it. That said, if it's a scenario, like it's barriers and bunny hopping barriers is a really, like you are not prepared for that. You don't feel comfortable doing it. Pre-riding the course. If you, if this works with your psychology, yes, you could try bunny hopping those barriers, but it might not be a great idea to do it right before that might be better for midweek practice instead of just before the race, because then you can really throw off your psychology for the rest of the race because you're you know, timid and and worried and concerned about that obstacle that just took you down. Um, great tips, Hannah, on the, on the pre-riding. Alex, do you, do you have any advice going into the cyclocross stuff? In this case for Mike, uh, he also asked about equipment and using his gravel bike. I know that you're going to be doing gravel races this year and a lot of different things. Do you have any yeah. equipment suggestions in general, even if it's not bike, but more tire or anything else? Um, no, I think the gravel bike is great. I think Hannah pointed out the the one geo difference that's common between gravel and cross specific bikes. Um, maybe going to a narrow, yeah, going to have to go to a narrow tire is the one thing that I would note is that I think 33C is the max you can run at cross. I mean, yeah. that's like regulated cross, right? So if you're 
doing a sanctioned race. That was the only thing that I would keep my eye out for. And for what it's worth um, on that point, Alex, like if you're going to race national championships or any race where that's regulated, it's a good idea to just use those tires. So then you don't have to switch at that race and get mm-hmm. thrown off. That said, if you're yeah, not going to do those races, run some big yeah. old balloon tires on there if you want, you know, <laughs> for sure. They can just be hard to go from those tires to like 33 C looks so like small compared to a gravel tire. Mm-hmm. Whereas from a road bike, they look much bigger. So it's, it's kind of depends where you're coming from. Um, I was just going to add on the pre-ride aspect, watching other people is super helpful, but like you were mentioning, knowing kind of where your limits are, but you can take mental notes, like watching other riders can kind of unlock what's possible in your brain. So if you never knew that people hopped barriers and then someone hopped it, you could make a mental, a mental note like, Oh, okay. Barriers, like we can hop those and then go home and, and practice that skill. I also like to think about like where, like race deciding moves, whether it's, you know, first, second, third, or fourth, like if you're with, with someone can be made, I think a great professional to watch do this is if you ever watch Wout race, Mm -hmm. he rides something at a time when other people aren't, but he also watches them. Like I watched the most recent race. They went around the course and he saw that everybody was running the run up. And then the next lap, he made a mental note to be on the front and he rode that run up. Not only is it going to gap them if you can do it faster, but it's also a mental thing where it's like they see you ride it and they can't ride it. Mm -hmm. It's, it's like that pre-ride where someone watched someone bunny hop and they can't, but you're doing it in a race scenario. So you're forcing them into either committing and trying it now or, or losing time. And so putting them under that pressure can be super helpful but also watching your competitors. Like if you, you sit in second or third wheel, the first couple laps and see what everybody else is doing, you can see where those alternative lines could, could get you a second or two. Mm-hmm. And I also like to, to have a few different options mm-hmm. through different parts of the course, especially in cross. Yeah. The options part is really important. I have like a system that I use and I pre-ride every course first lap. And this might, th- th- your mileage may vary. This may not work for everybody, but first lap when I ride a course, I, I go slow. And when I go slow, I'm like, uh, I actually visualize in my mind, like some sort of like laser scanner where I'm just looking at everything and I scrape every square foot of the course. Right. And then second lap, what I do is I follow my intuition and what I feel like is the best line. And then the third lap, when I follow that, I then look outside of that and I don't allow myself to take the same line that I did before in any portion of the course, because that's what Alex said is super important, particularly with cross if you start and it's a really packed field and everyone's going to the left up that run up, cause that's the best spot. And if you didn't go to the right and you have no clue what it looks like, you're not going to do it in the race. So you'll just be stuck behind everybody. But what if you went to the right and you figured, okay, it's a bit slower, but if it's really clogged up, I can still go fast up this. That might be a free one, two, three, even more positions that you could grab just because you took that one lap in a different line when you were pre-riding. And this goes for mountain yeah. biking. It goes for crit racing. It goes for everything. It's, there is a best line, but that doesn't mean that that's the only line. And in many cases, because of other riders, uh, a second best, third best, even fourth best line actually ends up being the best line in the right circumstances. So it's, yeah, super yeah. important. Reminds me of, uh, Mount St. Anne a couple of years ago, actually the Beatrice is like the main line on course and the B line actually isn't very straightforward it's a little tricky it's got some bumps in it but i rode that in thought of 
I'm starting, I was starting like last on the grid. It was my first ever world cup. And I was like, okay, I'll try this just in case like it's clogged. And I actually got 10 positions just by riding the beeline around Beatrice because everybody's like, once you get enough people in one space, even if it's slower before you can do it faster. Yeah. So just, just keeping an eye out for those alternative lines, even if they're, they're slower, Mm-hmm. like apples to apples you don't know what's going to happen on race day someone could crash in front of you like you said the start could be hectic but having a few options in your back pocket is a good idea i also like on mountain biking like technical trails i like to sit at the bottom and actually look up and you tend to see things differently than when you're like mm-hmm. got to make a decision you got to make it down this so you can kind of see like if there's like a smooth rock or a transfer or something different that you don't see from like trail view mm. And keep an open mind for each and every obstacle too. I think especially in cross, because there are some things that you're supposed to run. So I've spent a lot of time on cross courses, trying something, trying something, trying something, and ultimately just determined, oh, wait, every single person is running this. Okay. This is the part of the course that we're supposed to run Mm. Um, or vice versa, you know, and being like, oh, this is a run. And then getting into the race and being like, well, darn, (laughs) guess I should have tried riding it a couple of times. And just to add to what Jonathan said, because I think it's so interesting that everyone does have different approaches for pre-ride is I know most people like to go um, pretty slow that first hop, like he said, but for me, um, I like to move pretty efficiently that first lap, uh, for the reason Alex also cited was at Mount St. Anne, <laughs> which seems to be the free ride of choice. I, the first, the first year I got there, I remember I got to the very first obstacle on the course and I sat there and agonized over it and looked at it for probably 20 minutes and then finally wrote it. It's like, oh my gosh, I did it. We made it. The rest of the course is going to be easy. Got about 50 yards down the trail and realized that <laughs> the object I had been looking at for the last 20 minutes wasn't even a feature. It was just <laughs> part of the trail. So I like to ride the whole course. Even if I have to walk something, I like to just get through it once so that I can, so that I can know, okay, there's these three sections that are really gonna hard and going to require a lot of attention. And then that second lap is when I go back and I look, I really scan the course exactly like Jonathan was saying, look at everything, go slowly. Um, and then the third lap is when I start testing lines. So whatever works for you, whatever order works, but you probably want to include all of the elements mm-hmm. at some point or another. <laughs> One thing I've found yeah. with tricky obstacles too, ones that make you nervous. So I'm thinking like in cyclocross, this would likely be sections that you would ride like bunny hopping barriers or a tricky section that people are walking, whether it's like a steep technical climb or like through a ditch or something, I don't know, whatever it might be. I learned this after years of being like a pretty timid kid on dirt bikes. And I was surrounded by all my friends and that tends to attract a certain type of person. And they don't seem to have a whole lot of inhibition and they like to just like go for stuff. And so I was, I felt like I was surrounded by a bunch of brave kids and I was pretty timid. And I like looking back now, I remember there were jumps that were like two feet far probably. And I would give myself what feels like now, like a quarter mile runway to get out to this thing. (laughs) (laughs) And I would do that run up to it and I would stop before it. 
And then I would run up and I would stop and I would do it over and over and over. And I would build the whole thing up to be so much bigger than that two foot jump. Instead, it was a chasm. I was jumping over a volcano, right? Like in my (laughs) mind, it would have built up so much. And I got to a certain point and I I don't think this is advisable for everybody because if you haven't developed the skill sets yet, the skill set yet, then yeah, this could be a bad idea. But I got to a certain point when I remember, I realized I was holding myself back. Like you have the skills to do this, but this habit that you have of second guessing yourself and not trusting yourself is only hurting you. And I got to a point where I realized, okay, look backward at what you have done. Why are you approaching this with so much hesitation? You should approach this with confidence because you have a proven track record of evidence that you can do this. So if you find yourself in a situation where something's really psyching you out, uh, look at your process and really like be mindful and step outside of yourself for a bit and ask yourself that question. Have I done something like this before? Yeah, you have. Okay. How did I execute in that situation? Let's figure out how to do it this time and let's just go for it. And now I have a rule that I roll up to something once and then thereafter I do it and, or I don't, and that's it. And more often than not, I like to do things. So it usually happens after that one time, but it's really changed how I approach things. And it's allowed me to be more dynamic in race scenarios where sometimes because I didn't do a good job pre-riding and then I end up in that spot where I'm totally unfamiliar with the course, I just say, you can do this. And I end up getting over it. So it takes a while to, I think, build that confidence, but chances are you're better than you give yourself credit for. I think that we, most people uh, second guess themselves more than they should, particularly when it comes to their technical skill on the bike. So, and cyclocross is such a cool discipline to learn that because relatively speaking, the consequences are low compared to mountain biking or compared to even like crit racing or anything like that, where a crash is a crash is truly consequential. Uh, in cyclocross, you probably just get grass stains, um, you know, get muddy. So it's not too bad. What about race format? Because cyclocross is kind of like crit racing. It's a bit unique in the sense that you can do multiple races in a day sometimes, whether it's because of like master's age group and then able to race with the younger elites as well, or single speed and geared. There's usually opportunities to race multiple times. Have you done that, Hannah? And how have you like a warm ups and eating in between the races. How does that work? Yeah, definitely. I used to race, um, in the junior race or the U 23 race. And then again, later in the day in the women's, uh, elite or whatever the category was. Um, so yeah, definitely racing multiple times in a day, especially if you're new, why not? It's only going to help you. It you're going to gain fitness really quickly, uh, especially as a triathlete that I always just viewed it as a great training day on the bike. So highly recommend racing more than once. You'll probably actually find that since I'm guessing if you're new, I mean, I don't know you, but maybe fitness isn't your limiter. Maybe it's being new to cross. So you'll probably actually do better in that second race (laughs) because you're going to feel more confident on the course. So yeah, highly recommend racing twice in a day and Exactly. As you mentioned, the hardest thing is just figuring out nutrition, recovery, all of that. And, you know, it depends how long you have in between. Sometimes it's an hour, sometimes it's five. So be smart about it, but it's, it's all the typical things that, you know, you're supposed to do, but sometimes don't 
you have to do it in these type of scenarios. So get in your recovery um, drink or food or whatever you like to do right away after the race and then kick your feet up. It's really easy to spend a lot of time walking around, mingling, standing out in the sun, hanging out at the booths, try and just separate yourself, find a shady tree and just relax and totally disconnect for a little while. Uh, Maybe you go to your car, the parking lot for a little bit and just spend some time on your own. But if it's cold, um, it's funny. I almost said if it's hot because I did so much cyclocross in Southern California, Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) but for most people, it's probably cold. So make sure you're warming up really well. Um, literally warming up in between races and then warming up on the bike again. It, I find personally that if I race in the morning and then race again in the afternoon, it's not like my body is still warmed up, rare and ready to go. You have to do another warm up, and chances are it might actually need to be a little bit longer because mm-hmm. for the first 10 minutes, your legs might just feel junky and don't, don't be intimidated by that. It will go away. Um, so just spin and be fine with it. And I usually execute the same warm up from one race to the next, but I just allow extra time to spin with no objective at the start so that I can get over whatever icky feelings I have or sensations I have in the body before I start doing my structured warm up. Yeah. With if the races are close, and when I say close, I mean within two hours of each other, uh, I typically that warm up that I'll do for that second one will be like, I'm not, I'm not worried about like structured intensity as much in the warm up as much as mm-hmm. like you said getting through the the muddy feeling in my legs so that they can actually move freely again uh and it, yeah I'll I'll mix in a little bit of intensity cuz I don't want to be shocked by that cuz cyclocross always starts hard um but it's not much and then on food if it's like 5 hours like Hannah said then I'm going to eat a normal meal it's still not going to be like a ton of fat and a ton of everything else but I'll eat a normal meal but if it's within 3 hours uh, then I'm going to eat something that's just predominantly carb centric. Like I'll have rice and I might have something else with that rice, like a, something, maybe a touch of fat, like a bit of eggs in the rice or something else like that. And I'll bring that from home, <clears throat> but that's typically what I'll eat in between one thing on pacing pancakes, oh, yeah. Nutella eggs. And you said Nutella for you. Alex pancakes and Nutella pancakes. I would just pack us another set of pancakes. Yeah. They keep well. I think the, um, I think the important thing that they both just said was they would pack it. So you need to bring these things from home, think ahead, look at the schedule ahead, because if you're having to leave the race in the middle of the day to go to a restaurant or a grocery store, it's just not going to be efficient. You're not recovering the way that you want to. And they might have food truck food, but food truck food is rarely good for in between races, unless it's like Belgian waffles, then eat up. But if it's shawarma or something, it's not going to go well. I don't know. They give you the weirdest look when you ask them how much the Belgian waffle batter weighs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Alex brings his scale. Yeah. Yeah. To measure. Excuse me, sir. Do you have the macro breakdown for that? waffle? Yeah. Uh, the, the other thing I would say is that cyclocross, like I said just a little bit ago, it always starts hard. And as a new athlete, that will be particularly on the triathlon side. Maybe if you've done sprints, you're totally used to that. But if you're doing Olympics and above, that might really come as a shock. Um, but just know that almost every cyclocross athlete that you'll encounter at an amateur race is going to be starting too hard for their own good. So, uh, no way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And they'll end up slowing down 
and they might have their race profile will kind of look like a dip where it's really high, then it dips down and maybe it comes back or it goes really high. And then it just continues down for the rest of the race. That's the most likely scenario. If he can be the sort of athlete that has a more rounded dip, if he could be an athlete that actually has like an upward curve, like where you just get faster throughout the race, that can also be really helpful because making passes at the end of the race is that usually a whole lot easier than trying to make passes in the beginning in terms of energy cost, because in the beginning you'll have to surge past a pack and take questionable lines. Um, at the end, you'll be able to hold your line and that person will be like, I'm cross-eyed, please pass me. I don't want anything to do with you. So that can really help you, uh, when you start out with that and etiquette, if anybody's people love to give tips and hear us giving tips, but at cyclocross races, people love to give tips that are like the, the typical things like doing a step through and you're, and they really focus on like the dismount and the remount, figure that out at whatever pace you want to figure it out, figure it out with whatever technique you want. And then come race day, if somebody's telling you to like do a step through and you're not used to that, just smile and nod and thank them, but don't worry about it. Like it doesn't need to happen. Step through step. Like when people focus on the thick of thin things to distract themselves from the much more important matters. Right. So just let, like just like warmers, Jonathan, sorry, what's that? Like leg warmer. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. We're not going to get into that right now, but yeah. Actually speaking of leg warmers, I cannot believe I didn't mention this because I feel like it's critical. <laughs> um, <laughs> not what you think I'm going to say, but with cyclocross. <laughs> nothing to do with socks. <laughs> with, no, nothing to do with socks. Well, kind of, okay. but it bring an well, extra Well, this guy's pair. not wearing That's socks. That's what so. it is. Bring an extra <laughs> oh, pair. Alex, how dare you? <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. Oh man. But yeah, bring an okay, extra well, pair, it, you said. Yeah. Or, or if you're not wearing any, then bring two extras. Yeah. <laughs> but but seriously. He doesn't care if they go yeah. up or under. Yeah. <laughs> with cyclocross, it's just it's so critical because you're going to go out and you're going to pre-ride the course and you're going to be muddy and you're going to be cold and you're going to be wet and you're going to be sweaty. And then you're going to sit around for 20 minutes and then you're going to warm up and then you're going to be sweaty and cold. And then you're going to go to the start line. And there's nothing worse than a cold, muddy, wet pair of socks when you're starting the race. Yeah. You don't want to so bring, <laughs> yeah, bring whatever extras you have. If you have an extra base layer, if you have an extra Jersey and bibs, leg warmers, you will be happy because you're going to look around and everyone else is going to be wet and shivering and you'll at least have fresh, clean clothes on. And it makes a huge difference. Yeah. So that that's probably actually my biggest tip in terms of comfortability out there. And if you're doing multiple, especially if you're racing twice, yeah, yeah. Yes. <laughs> please bring a spare shin. Yeah. <laughs> Chad, we're, we're talking to yeah. you. <laughs> Don't use the same. Yeah. One. Another pro tip for cyclocross, if you're doing multiple races, you can go to like, uh, in the United States, uh, home improvement stores like home Depot and everything else. They now have really compact pressure washers. And I mean, super compact, like it's like the size of like a hand drill and, uh, you can get those. And then you just bring like a bucket and you just fill that up with water or some of them even have onboard water and just get your bike clean. But in between races, uh, that makes a huge difference. If you're, if you're doing a muddy race and you go into that second race, I mean, I hate to be like the, the nerd, but you're probably losing like 40 Watts probably in just your chain. And then you have the fact that your tires are probably covered with mud and who knows if those will, you know, actually be clear enough to be able to give you grip when the race starts. There's lots of, lots of things to keep in mind. You might not recognize that you have something broken on your bike or malfunctioning because it's covered in mud. It's really important. And, uh, they're pretty cheap and they're pretty, and they're super portable. So 
Good tips. Um, so yeah, and also stay tuned in this case, uh, Mike, for that successful athletes podcast we'll do with Jim Mueller, the 74 year old national champion, uh, from, I was just thinking that this sounded very, very similar to the, yeah. the story of Jim. I'm going to give this away here, but, uh, Jim is, uh, he's a farmer as well. He had a long career in it, but he lived on a farm. So he like has, he goes into detail about like how he practiced for cross on his farm. He basically just has cycle. I, say, I hope he built a cross course out there all over the place. <laughs> he has them all over his That's property. Awesome. Yeah. It's pretty great. So, okay. Brent, he sold all the tractors and he just yeah. rides around. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. The cows are probably really upset, but, um, <laughs> Brent says, I'm looking for physical and mental techniques that allow me to enter the hurt locker during a race and Ooh. maximize my physiology. Amber talked about an arousal state, which can be harnessed. And he said, that's his rephrasing. And I'm wondering what mental jujitsu I can perform to unleash the beast within. So the thing that Amber's talking about is that arousal state, basically like we, our minds, our body is designed to be able to respond to threats and opportunities, right? And, uh, a lot of the time people talk about this, about like the autonomic responses of like fight and flight. However, what really you want your body not to be in the, such a polarized, uh, zone like that. Instead, you want your body to be in the right bandwidth for that. And that's what she's talking about. The right arousal state Lee McCormick. He's a skills instructor, incredible one for mountain biking. Lee likes bikes. He talks about that too. When he gets an athlete into something that's too challenging, their level of arousal is too high. And that's when you can't even take whatever you're supposed to do. You can't even take it on. Um, it's too overwhelming. And if it's too low and it's too easy, you're not prepared to be in a spot where your body is challenged and is learning either. So that's like that arousal state that we're talking about. You kind of want to be in the right zone with that. So, but the question is, how do you get to that? Because races often push people too high up and they're so nervous that they can't even collect their thoughts. Or on the other side, you kind of react to those nerves with, completely removing all levels of arousal and kind of being apathetic about everything. And then you miss opportunities that, that, that go in front of you in a race. Um, Alex, I want to get, maybe we'll go to you and then we'll go to Hannah on this. What do you do to, and I'll say get in the zone, but particularly like we're talking about here to be able to get the most out of yourself. What does that mental state feel like and how do you get there? Yeah. Um, I guess I, it's a, it's a two part thing for me. I like routine. So I do the same things. I, I think I feel like they're cues to my brain that it's like go time. Pancakes kind of started all off. <laughs> like if I'm having pancakes, like we're, we're going to do a workout. And so like, it kind of starts there. And then I like, I like music at races, like normally 15, 20 minutes before I start my warm up, just kind of like get in my own space and listen to music that I like. Um, I also like going back to Amber, something I've started was kind of approaching with curiosity. I like asking myself questions like, what am I capable of? Can I suffer more? Can I last five more seconds? Kind of more optimistic questions like that and kind of take the, I guess, take the failure out of it because I'm okay losing if I gave my full effort. Mm -hmm. So I think my goal always is to have clear if I've given my all. Like I want I don't want afterwards to be like, oh, I could have gone harder. You know, like I want in the moment to know that 
I just couldn't have given an ounce more. And so kind of approaching it that way has, has helped me a lot mm -hmm. and just taking the result piece away from it. of just, is this, is this what I'm capable of? Mm -hmm. Am I capable of more? Can I suffer more? Can I, you know, go one gear higher? Can I make it to that tree? Kind of stuff like that keeps me focused and, and grounded without getting like, oh, I'm not doing well. I'm not climbing this fast enough. I didn't do that. Like those negative thoughts, I feel like one are negative and, and, you know, it's kind of like if you look at the tree, you're going to hit the tree. So negative thoughts create negative outcomes, but also like they're distracting. If you're thinking those thoughts, then you're not focusing on your line or the gear you're in or breathing or just the basics. Mm -hmm. So now for Alex, you've mentioned this before on your Instagram last year that you have struggled in the past with on race day, getting what you feel like your or fulfilling your potential mm -hmm. on race day. And this is common for athletes around the world in every single sport, the vast majority of athletes. And for those of us listening to this, you can probably relate. You might be the sort of person where competition pulls absolute PR performance out of you every time. But for a lot of us, it isn't that way. And it can be tougher to get the most out of ourselves. Alex, I don't expect you to have this figured out because all of us are figuring this out and we're doing that for our entire, you know, competitive careers, whatever that may, whatever level that may be. But what are your thoughts and what are you looking forward to applying this year to be able to get, to maximize and express all of that potential that you have in a race environment? I think the biggest thing for me, as odd as it may sound, is vulnerability. Mm. Like, like when I'm alone, like yesterday I did some power testing when it's just me, like I, I can kind of just, there is no failure cause it's just me. So it's like, I think being that deep in the pain cave around people mm. is a struggle for me. It's kind of a, it's a very circular and backwards way of thinking because in my mind I'm like, oh, I got to hold a little back in case someone attacks me. But if I'm holding a little bit back, that's what allows them to be able to attack me. So it's. Mm -hmm. As, as logical as I can see it right now, it's like on a big climb or in a key part of the race, I struggle with that level of vulnerability and, and just having, leaving it all out there kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, well, that's a, like, you're afraid of not performing to the level that you want to perform. And at the same time, you're also afraid of performing at a certain level and then you feeling like that, that validates your fears and concerns, right? It's complicated. Um, Hannah, have you battled? I'm sure you've battled with that. You're an athlete. I think all athletes do. Do you have any thoughts to share on that specific aspect of it? Like of how to get the most out of yourself and that fear of, uh, failure and vulnerability on race day. Yeah, I think that's, it's just so true. And it's a piece that not a lot of people discuss because it's uncomfortable, but I always say sports are vulnerable. Um, you know, I've, I've even talked with people who have said, yeah, you know, I, I actually prefer not to do my best because then I know if I fall short, I, I could have done better mm -hmm. and it makes me feel better. And it's such a skewed way to look at it. Um, but it makes sense in the moment. It's so weird that it makes sense. Right. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and I think, I think Alex is totally right is you have to be vulnerable because I mean, what's the, what's the point if you're leaving something completely on the table intentionally? Um, so 
yeah, I think, I think the reality of the situation just is that you have to be willing to be vulnerable and you have to put yourself in the place before the race, knowing whatever happens happens and I'm going to be okay with that. And my value and worth as a human is not grounded in the result of this race, but it's really fun to try and see what I can do. Mm -hmm. Um, and even as professional athletes, we have to remember that too, as I am a racer, but that is not who I am. If that makes sense, that's not my entire worth. And so if I fall flat on my face, when I tried my best, that doesn't make me any less of a person or a human. Um, it just means I didn't have a great day out on the course. And so I think remembering that, uh, is a critical piece. And, 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 that, and that's just a part of it. You know, maybe that's what makes you nervous. Maybe it's this whole other host of things. And I think that's where the stress performance curve, um, really comes into play is recognizing where you're at. You know, it's, it's an inverted you as Jonathan said. So if stress is on the bottom and performance is, is up the side, if you're too, if you're not stressed enough, you're not going to perform well. If you're the right amount of stressed, you're going to perform the best. And if you're not stressed at all, or if you're too stressed, excuse me, on the other end, you're not going to perform well. So finding that optimal performance to me starts with learning where you're at on that curve. Mm. And it might seem really obvious, but that is something that took me a really long time in my career because I feel like mainstream media always talks about getting pumped up. How do you get pumped up before the race, pump up music, you know, maybe not in cycling, but you see football locker room scenes and all these things where everyone's jumping around and yelling. I thought, okay, well, this is what I need to do. I need to listen to pump up music. I need to listen to motivational talks. I need to, you know, really get in the zone on the trainer. And it wasn't for several years that all of a sudden I realized I am so stressed out. I don't know how people handle this pump up music. And I took a step back and thought, well, what if I'm on this other end? And now for me, I know I'm on the more stressed out end of the spectrum and I have to spend some time, you know, with my own thoughts, meditating or praying before the race and, and being calm and, and separating myself and, you know, those type of things. And so I think the very first step is just recognizing where you're at on that curve and then going from there. Mm. That's a really good, uh, cause without that, you're always going to be hunting or reaching for something that isn't like, you know, true to yourself. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I feel like one thing that I've learned with, because the, the big thing is we've probably all had days where we feel like we did enter that state at the right level of arousal and we did execute and it went really well. And thinking of Alex at the Leadville series last year, just, you know, checking those boxes. Right. And, and that's what it feels like when it's a right day. It feels like you're checking boxes. It's just like, boom, 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 they're done. So we've all done it, but the key is making it replicable. And I think that pattern is important with that, but I've learned for me personally that I need to allow a bit of flexibility in there too, because on a, I don't know if it's because I'm just in a different place on one day to another or different circumstances of the race. But I've had to like, um, my whole life with motocross and everything else growing up in racing and ski racing, I had this like pre-race routine was just a big part of what I did. 
and I was really locked into a routine and I felt like the more rigid I can make it, the more replicable, the, the more consistent the result, and I'm going to get better results as a result of that. And over time, I've learned that the pattern is absolutely important. The routine is important. However, I need to allow for flexibility within that. Um, parenthood has really helped teach that to me because nothing's consistent <laughs> and it's always changing and it's, but it's helped me a bit. Um, nationals is a good example this year of, um, looking at the numbers and looking at everything else, a truly off day. Um, I just did like a big analysis on this about a month ago and I really, this was post Cape Epic. So I felt like I finally had the season out of my head and I could really just focus. And I looked back at nationals and I really broke it all down. I truly had a bad day in terms of my performance. I did not perform to the level that I should have been able to perform at. Um, in training, I was doing numbers that were far better than that, right? Um, far better. And this is a common circumstance for a lot of people. I know Alex this is something you've mentioned too. And looking back at the whole process, I think I let my level of arousal get too high. And when I look back at the day before, two days before, three days before, I was so stressed. I was like locked up and I was trying to fit everything into this pre-race pattern. And I really just needed to let it go more and I needed to be more comfortable with it. <clears throat> so I feel like it's a process and, and I'll always maybe be chasing this ball around in circles. Um, patterns really helpful, but the one thing that I've learned is that being strict with it, you know, is really tough. If you don't have pattern in your life, then bring that in. It's going to do a whole lot of help. If you do have pattern and you're extremely rigid with it, question yourself, just like what Hannah said, where do you sit on this spectrum and try to find and, and give yourself the flexibility to reach wherever you need to reach on that curve. And then, like Alex said, approaching things with curiosity, like an Amber, obviously uh, original quote to Amber Pierce, what a wonderful way to look at things because that truly allows you to fulfill potential rather than has you reaching for a specific bar. And, and sometimes we set our bar too low and, and that, you know, curiosity can help us get, get over the top. What, any other thoughts on pre-race prep to help yourselves get in the ideal state? For me, another piece that plays in huge for me is, um, encompassing a lot of positive thinking and gratitude. And that might seem really obvious because of course, no one wants to go to the line with negative thoughts, <laughs> but it, it's not just not having negative thoughts. It's intentionally having positive thoughts and believing those thoughts and getting to the place where you believe those thoughts. Um, and I think it's important to start that before the race, but to carry it from wire to wire as well. And and I find that every minute that goes by, that's a place, um, like it says, how do I enter the hurt locker mm -hmm. to me, the piece of, of finding your ideal arousal state enters you into the game. Congratulations. You're now part of the race entering into your hurt locker and figuring out how to go hundred percent is that next step after that. So once you found that perfect arousal state, being able to hang on to positivity and gratitude for me is the biggest piece. And one of the rules that I try, I've tried to set for myself that I'm not always successful with is even after I cross the finish line, I have to be positive for at least 30 minutes. 
Because if you know that the second you cross the finish line, you're going to turn to whomever's standing there with a bottle for you and say, what an off day. Uh, Oh my gosh. It was such a bad race. You're already thinking that out on the course. So for me, knowing that when I cross the finish line, I'm going to own that result with at least one positive word in the finish shoot means that I have to hang on to and believe that word the whole race because it's going to come out of my mouth to somebody else at the finish. And so that's, that's something that it, it helps me a lot because then it can become a mantra of, you know, even if everything else is going bad, you can at least turn, hopefully you can at least turn at the finish and say, well, I followed my nutrition plan, just whatever it is, hold on to it so that you execute one thing that you're proud of hmm. and it will help your race. Yeah. That, that, those are, that's a great way to do it, uh, to kind of have that cohesive thread. This is something that we talked about in the successful athletes podcast with Connor Wilson. Uh, I recommend everybody check that out Yeah, in one year. He ended up getting up to, I think that he was four something, uh, but he got up to 5.2 Watts per kilogram using train road. I think he's a pro cyclist. It just found it too late. Um, he's, he's a really, he, not to take away from him. Actually, that was kind of a rude comment because he puts in so much structure and hard work. It's not like he's just some naturally talented person that stumbled upon this. Connor, you work really hard. And I recognize that, um, Connor used to be a very high level ski racer. And we were talking a bit about visualization and we discussed something that I, I had worked on visualization my whole life, whether it was memorizing a ski course, whether it was a motocross track and now in cycling. And I struggled many times with when I was envisioning something and I have my eyes closed right now. If you're driving, don't do this. But when I was, when I was (laughs) visualizing something and have my eyes closed, I'd be walking through a course and sabotage would happen. I'd see myself crash or I'd see myself get past, or I'd see, you know, I'd see something bad happen. And I remember I used to like halt and be afraid of those bad thoughts. Like if I'm envisioning a bad thought, why am I doing that? restart. And, and I would try to force myself to see it positively, but in the back of my mind, I would then have this doubt that would reside there the whole time. And I had a breakthrough moment and I cannot believe I didn't talk to somebody about this because I bet that I could have solved it way earlier. Um, and it would have helped me, but I had a breakthrough moment where instead of stopping and being afraid of those bad occurrences and the bad things that I would see when I was envisioning something, I would entertain them and I would explore them and I would see their outcome. And then what I would do is I would think, okay, so how do I recover from that? How do I switch? And I think that the reason that I had such an adverse reaction to it was because in skiing, if you make a mistake, you're disqualified. So if you miss a gate or if your ski pops off, you're done. And it's such a tight sport that if you crash, you're also effectively done. Like there's, there's no way. So I think that that do or die sort of circumstance made me have this reaction. But if you are envisioning something and something bad happens, it's not sabotage. These are all outcomes that could happen and don't be afraid to explore them. So when you see yourself blowing up on that climb, it's okay. Run through it. Don't turn it off. Keep that dream going for a bit, see it through and then see how you recover. Don't try to override it. See how you end up riding that wrong later on. And, and that's been transformational for me because it's allowed me to have like a better relationship with envisioning outcomes of races and then being able to approach it with curiosity, like Alex said, and also without fear. So then that way, when, because otherwise you envision something, you're afraid of these moments that could go bad. As soon as you go into that race and a bad thing happens, 
you will become doubtful, you will lose focus, and it really ends up hurting you. So envisioning isn't envisioning something perfectly. It's just seeing how you move through the race and let yourself go through all different avenues that you have time to explore. And I promise you, it will make it so that when you're in the race, you feel much more balanced. You feel like you're in control and you feel like you can execute. That's just been a huge thing. Don't be afraid of bad envisioning. Let yourself run through it. Um, and then I, I think also this is where we have to acknowledge a bit of difference. So if we had Keegan on this podcast right now, he'd be talking about how he just wants to crush souls. Like that's, that's what he wants to make people wish they didn't show up to a race, right? Like that's, that's what motivates him. And that will not motivate somebody else. They're going to have a very different motivation and don't feel bad for whatever your motivation is. Everyone's going to have different motivations and champions are not cut from the same cloth. They may have some similarities, but their motivations may be very different, right? So don't feel like you have to be just like somebody else. The key principles that Hannah is like sharing here is that you have to find the right bandwidth where you sit. And then thereafter, what you have to do is you have to allow yourself, like Alex is saying, racing with curiosity, but you have to allow yourself to reach and reach and reach and accomplish what you want to accomplish. Um, don't be afraid of not accomplishing it. Allow yourself to reach it. So at whatever pace, whatever that looks like for you. So Alex, uh, do you have anything else to, to add on this one? No, I think we covered it. I, I see a book recommendation in here. So I was going to add mine. Uh, Endure is a really good book. Yeah. For this. Some people really respond to like uh, David Goggins sort of motivation that can't hurt me. Like he's a, uh, he's a strong brand. That's for darn sure. Um, for some people that really works for other people, something else might work. Um, Endure is a great one. It really mechanically breaks down everything that, uh, that you go through in a race and, and how to do that. Um, yeah. Great one. Chad also put in a recommendation squat every day. Um, I'm not sure what that book means. I'm not sure what it's about, but I trust that if Chad put it in, cause it's in green text and I think that's what Chad would put in, then I think it's good. So, uh, okay. What do you say? We go into some rapid fire stuff. Then we go back to the question that we were going to cover. Sound good. Uh, Taryn says, would you rather race 12 cyclocross races every day for 10 days or one 12 hour ride every day for 10 days? 12 hour ride. Easy. Yeah. They do 12 hour rides 10 days in a row. Yeah. Cause if you're doing 12 cross races, that's 12 hours. Away. <laughs> my 12 hour ride, I get to count the downhill. Maybe he's, as ride maybe time. he's in the four or five category or something. And the races are like 30 minutes. Let's just assume they're 30 minutes just because you bring up a good point, Alex. It could be even sixes there. Oh, that is a good point. I read it as one cross race every day for 12 days, but now I'm realizing it's 12. <laughs> why this question's hard. Yeah, <laughs> I was yeah. like, why is this even a question? One hour yeah. day or 12? <laughs> So 12, 30 minute cross races. Sorry, Taryn, if this is not your intent, we're embellishing, but it's going to make it, I think more clear 12 cyclocross races. Let's just say the 30 minute races and doing that every day for 10 days or a 12 hour ride every day for 10 days. Still 12 hour ride. If the cross course changes every day, then I would pick the cross races. If it's the same course every day, race for the 10 days, 
than the 12 hour rides because I can at least go somewhere different. <laughs> it's 120 different courses. <laughs> Every cross. Yeah, there you go. It's impressive. <laughs> maybe it's at uh maybe it's at Jim Mueller's farm, like we were talking about, our successful athletes podcast. There He's got go. lots there of them. Go. I I think I do the cyclocross races. I don't know. I'm just not a 12 hours is long. I've uh I've ridden longer than that before and boy, I don't really ever want to do that again. That's that's long to me. But yeah, I think I'd do the cyclocross race. That said, 24 hour racing, which is more or less probably what that would feel like, is miserable. I don't know. Taryn, why do you got to do that to us? Neither of those sound fun. Um, Jessica, what sort of terrain do you fear most? Mud, rocks, jumps and drops, high speed sections, or wet roads? Hmm. For me, wet it's roads. just wet trails, like wet rocks, wet roots, wet. I, I just have this thing where when, like, like you're saying, when I envision it, I envision just being in this straight line and then just my wheels suddenly like being above my <laughs> <Yes>. head. <laughs> so it's been a work in progress of realizing, oh, wow, actually that doesn't happen in real life, but also <laughs> That's I'm <laughs> yeah, but also that's why I'm I'm going to Bellingham this weekend specifically because I want to ride somewhere wet and try and overcome this fear so that I can visualize and know that I've done it before. <laughs> so nice. conquer your fears. <laughs> there you go. How about you, Alex? Wet roads. Wet roads. I feel I feel like anything on trail is in my control. I feel like wet roads, you come across like an oil patch. Like my obscene fear is like you coming around a right sweeper. You hit this, there's a car coming the other way. And yeah. Oh, it's terrifying. You know? So it's just like, I feel like out on the trail, it's just me and my mountain bike. It's like, I'm, I'm happy pegging trees and sliding <laughs> off rocks. <laughs> yeah. I think that I, um, I struggle the most with slow technical stuff. If you give me hmm. speed, I feel like I can solve anything and I'm totally lying to myself, but, uh, you know, that's like how I rationalize, like everything gets better with speed. And honestly, it's usually pretty true. Uh, but, um, slow stuff that's technical has been a big challenge for me. And I've made a lot of progress over the past handful of years by, um, working on skills and working on body position and then reinforcing those principles when I'm in the middle of those really technical things. Um, it's also just like when I was a little kid, I'm relearning the fact that like, Hey, you don't need to freak out as much about it. You actually can do it. Just give yourself the chance to succeed. But I would say slow tech yeah. is typically where I struggle the most. Um, I feel you there yeah. being forced to go slow. I think, yeah. I think that's also a little bit of a hack is if you ride something faster, it normally gets easier. Yeah. So it's not forcing you to go slow. Consider going faster. It makes those holes, not holes yes. <laughs> and you're not, going like, yeah. the, you know, getting bucked around, but I agree with you. I think like the balance piece of going slow can be hard sometimes. For sure. Yeah. Uh, another one from Brian, which of the lifetime grand prix races are the hosts that got accepted looking forward to most, which, Hey, you're both here. So we can answer this one. Uh, which ones are you looking forward to most? Not on <laughs> <laughs> says the mountain biker. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Hannah, why don't you go first? Which one are you looking forward to most? can be multiple too. doesn't have to just be one. I think what I'm most looking forward to with that series is the variety. Mm -hmm. Just, just the fact that it is so different. I'm excited looking at that list of people who are accepted every 
person on there is so comes from such different backgrounds as well. Ashton, Ashton Landy so is in there. Me. I didn't <laughs> I yeah. saw his name. I was like, exactly. wait, what? <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah. yeah. Track racer. So cool. So I, I just think it's going to be so exciting watching people's strengths and weaknesses be exposed race after race after race. So I think just point blank, the, the variety of it all is what I'm most excited for. Yeah. Is there a race you're not looking forward to? Like one that you're fearing about? I'm not planning of of the six. I'm not planning on doing Unbound, so I'll be starting the <laughs> <Yes>. other five. <laughs> I guess it would be safe to see that one. Then. And I see. I <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's a long day. That is also my plan currently is to not do Unbound. Honestly, ever since that race has come out, every time I'm flying over Kansas, I look down and it's not flat. It's just constantly rolling, constantly bumpy. And I look at that and I'm just like, oh, I do not want to. I'm. I look down over Colorado when I'm flying over it and I'm like, Oh, I want to be there on my bike. I do not feel that when I go over Kansas, I don't have the same feelings. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I don't blame you. I'm looking forward to watching the one or like following, I guess, however we do it these days. Um, I think the one I'm looking forward to most is Leadville because I feel like Leadville is a race that should have closer, tighter and super exciting racing, but usually doesn't. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that, um, oh, how do I say this in a way that doesn't sound offensive? Ugh. Sorry, I'm being transparent with you podcast listeners. Um, I, I feel like the race should, should have a higher level of competition, attract more depth than it does. It has incredible athletes at it, but it usually ends up having like, um, a handful or even sometimes one standout rider that's above the cut you know, or a cut above the rest. And hopefully with this lifetime grand prix, we'll get enough riders there that will have group tactics. Cause that's why that race has so much potential. I think that we'll have group tactics that can play out and really influence the outcome. I think it would make Leadville fascinating. And I think that it's a really cool thing. It has been getting more and more riders. Uh, Keegan, unfortunately just, uh, kind of walked away with it last year. I mean, fortunately for Keegan, but not fortunate for those that were hoping to like watch a really tight race, you know? So, but that, that's the one I'm looking forward to most. I think I'll actually go to Leadville this year. I'm not racing it, but, uh, I want to go there and watch and support. And, uh, it's a really, really cool event for that. So, uh, and says, I have a very silly question using the power of all of your big data sets. Are you able to tell who is the best at matching power targets using resistance mode? Are there riders out there who have such a smooth pedal stroke that it shows up in the data? That's a great question, Anne. And I'll actually try to wrap my head around how we can explore that. Um, I bet there's some ways we can do it. We're always digging into the data. Uh, Alhan, one of our lead engineers, he's just amazing. And, um, or one of our, I, Alhan, you're an engineer, but you're also a product manager. You're you, you do everything. So, um, Alhan's amazing. And we're always working on and looking at the data set and exploring different questions, boy, it takes a whole lot more diligence and work than people think to answer those sort of questions, because we do not want to share data that is not responsible. It's very easy to just like take the data and kind of pose this question and get whatever answer you want. That's convenient and roll with that and not be honest, but that's not how we roll. We have to be honest. So that takes a lot of work, but maybe we can figure that out. And Seems like a kind of a fun one to discover. Uh, somebody out there is going to be a robot and we'll find him. Uh, Marius says, what is the hardest race that you would do again? So I assume hardest race that you've done that you would do again. 
Hmm. Leadville. Yeah, Leadville's hard. For me, it's Leadville. Yeah. Cape Epic. I would do it again. It would have to be with the right person though, because that would have to be the draw is that experience with that person that I would have, um, rather than just going for the, it's just so much commitment. Otherwise, yeah, I can't justify it. What are you doing in four months, Jonathan? Uh, are you saying that you would be my partner? Cause I do not want to do that race with yeah. you. I like you a lot, but you would kill me. It'll <laughs> <so. laughs> be fun. Yeah. Yeah, it would be fun. I mean, Brandon destroyed me like, uh, and I got to watch Brandon just be bored on the climbs the whole entire week. You know, um, <laughs> he practiced, he could have worked on juggling while he was climbing basically when it was climbing at my pace. So, uh, yeah, I think it would have to be Cape Epic. It's really hard. Excited for that one, by the way. Um, really excited. Can't wait for to see that one. Okay. Ray, or actually let's go back up to Ryan's question. He has two. He says, how much physiological stress does adding in short three to 15 second sprints on endurance rides add? Does it negatively impact other objectives of endurance rides, given that they have different objectives? He mentions mitochondrial capabilities versus neuromuscular adaptations, et cetera. I wanted to pitch this one to you first, Alex, because Alex, you have mentioned multiple times that you like doing these endurance rides and then you mix in short seated sprints, um, seated being contextually appropriate to mountain biking, right. In the sense that that's what you mm. work on a lot, but do you feel like incorporating those sprints flies in the face of the endurance adaptations that you're going for with your endurance training? No, um, it's definitely not a purely endurance ride, but it incorporating those would definitely bring it away from being purely endurance. Um, the closest thing I have to what Ryan is saying is sprinting my brother. <laughs> and I think Hannah had similar thoughts, but the elation and dopamine release of beating my brother in a sprint far outweighs anything <laughs> <laughs> that, that comes from negatively impacting. So I will take those three to 15 second sprints to, to dust him every now and again. Do you feel like it, uh, adversely affects any of your following workouts though? Like because you did the sprints, now you're done. Um, not that I could objectively say was because of the sprint. Mm -hmm. Um, I will say whether or not anything real comes of it. I don't do sprints at the end of rides as I'm getting closer to racing, like in the off season, I feel like I just have more bandwidth to do make stupid decisions and pay for them. <laughs> so if there is any negative impact to it, I'm okay with it this time of year. But like, for example, if it was April and I was a week or two out from sea otter, then I would probably just not with no evidence to say that I shouldn't, but just more kind of how I think about how structured I am is I'm more mm -hmm. loose around this time of year because I feel like there's only a certain amount of mental matches. And then as we get closer to racing, I'm definitely more tight on the little things. Mm. How about you, Hannah? Um, do you incorporate that into your training, into like endurance training at the same time? Yeah, sometimes I'll have, you know, little 15 second sprints throughout, um, which I think is a very mountain bike style of workout because it's so rare that on if you're on a trail that you're just doing one consistent pace the whole time. And so, especially if you can't get on trails because where you live in the winter, it's hard. I think this is actually a great way to, um, pretend like you're on extremely variable terrain, but that said, 
one of the things that I usually focus on in those type of workouts is after that 15 second sprint, immediately going back into whatever pace I'm supposed to be riding for that workout. So aerobic or tempo. So then I'm truly adding in the sprints and not doing a sprint and recover type of workout, which then inevitably also means those sprints can't be all out, all out, all out. Um, so it, it's give or take on everything. And if you're a, if you're a track racer and you're really good at recruiting those muscle fibers that you can go all out super deep, and then you have to recover for 10 minutes after 15 second sprint that is hurting you mm. on your aerobic rides. But if you're just throwing in these, I think Alex, I think you, you call them accelerations, mm-hmm. don't mm-hmm. you? I think that's a perfect word. Instead of sprint, I would call it an acceleration. Yeah. If you want to work on sprints and you want to improve that work on sprints, if you want to improve aerobic ability, aerobic capabilities, and that's your goal with endurance work, do that endurance work. Mixing them, I think has a different objective and it's probably misunderstood a lot of the time. It's when an athlete wants to exhaust anaerobic, um, stores, and they want to make sure that throughout that endurance ride, they are forcing themselves to operate at more of an aerobic level, then yeah, that can be a case. And that can happen. Super important. Like you said, Hannah, in those cases to not sprint and chill, but sprint and just continue exactly where you were before go back to it. But you know, it's, it's really, you just have to be intentional with your training. Like, what are you trying to accomplish? And I think that's an important question that you should ask every day. It's why we have like goals and descriptions with every single workout and trainer road. And you can see what the goal of the workout is. Uh, and, and that's really important when we build our training plans, we have, okay, on Tuesdays or the third day of the week, since you can shuffle it around on the third day of the week, we really want this job to be accomplished for this athlete. Cause their goals are X and on the, it's different than it is on the fourth day or on the first day. It's just object. Like you, you want to be clear with your intentions and then you want to go out and accomplish that with your training. That's the whole point. Um, otherwise it's just riding right. And riding is awesome and it's fun, but you don't necessarily have a guaranteed outcome from riding other than maybe having a lot of fun, which is also good. Um, but you won't have a guaranteed training outcome if you don't have a specific input or specific objective that you're working toward to accomplish. So it's not a bad thing to work them in. It can be intentional at times. You'll notice that in a lot of our workouts, we have workouts like this that are aerobic. And then every once in a while you have accelerations, um, every 15 minutes, every 30 minutes, whatever it might be. Um, but Uh, more commonly, if you're really trying to improve sprints, you'll do that work. If you're trying to improve endurance work, you'll do that. As far as it impacting your aerobic, like if you mix in sprints, does it break the productivity of your aerobic work? Absolutely not. Don't worry about that. That's like a a big misnomer that if you break a zone, suddenly there's like no productivity for the 99% of the workout that you spent inside that zone. That's not the case. So Ryan has another question. He says, is there a large consequence to consuming some fat on an endurance ride? Or is it fine to have some fat? To what extent does that change as intensity increases? And he mentions oftentimes fat is very hard to avoid as most energy bars have fat in them. Hannah, what would you say to this one? I think that, no, there's not a large consequence to consuming fat, um, especially in the examples that that he gives in terms of an energy bar, Mm -hmm. because it's not so much fat that your body's going to run on that fat. 
Um, the biggest thing with that, you know, if you have glycogen stores, your body's using that first. And so as long as you have enough glycogen, that fat's not, that fat's not hurting you or requiring you to go at a lower intensity. The biggest thing with this is you just want to make sure that you're not consuming fat at the expense of consuming carbs, which if you're eating a bar with some nut butter or something in it, that's not the case. If you're consuming something that is almost entirely fat, and then you're so full that you cannot consume a carbohydrate (laughs) in addition to it, that's when we get into the problems. Um, because you're, if you only are running on fat, then to answer your question, you would have to lower the intensity um, but if you have glycogen, then your body's going to use that first. So the fat won't be a problem. Another concern to think about too, is that fat is more costly in terms of energy consumption and more time demand to digest than carbohydrate. So in, if you are ingesting fat, it will slow down your body's ability to digest even carbohydrate that you're taking in as well. But if it's an endurance ride, you probably don't have to worry about that. As intensity increases and you're burning more calories and your body is using more sugar and that is the digestive process, the higher the intensity, the more disruptive fat will become. So it's, it's not something you have to like worry about, like, uh, what Hannah said on an endurance ride, but a race or anything else like that. That's why. And I go far to the extreme on this one. Uh, and just carbohydrate. And I don't want any fat when I'm doing something that's like a a race or training or anything else. If it's like a normal ride and I don't have a specific objective, yeah, I'm fine with whatever, like peanut butter, jelly, bring it on. I love it. But if it's a race, I just go to carbohydrate because I'm like, well, why would I put pump gas in here instead of race gas? Like I'm just going to put race gas in the machine. Uh, it's going to be even better for it. So but it's not like it's going to throw off your endurance rides. Alex, how about you? I know that you tend, I mean, you and I are kind of cut from the same cloth in terms of, we like to look at the grams per hour of what we're eating in carbs and try to push that up as high as we can. Yeah. Um, for racing, for sure. I actually make a point to bring like a cliff nut butter filled bar on anything, call it over three and a half, four hours just to have in the middle, just to have a little bit of fat on that ride. Um, but yeah, racing, it's shooting for a hundred gram of carb an hour and it's just as many different kinds of sugar as I can get. Yeah. So don't, don't stress about it too much. Ryan, you seem like a, an athlete like us that likes to overthink things a lot. So good to have you in. It's a, it's a big club doors wide open. <laughs> so, um, we have a rapid fire submission from one of our live listeners, appetite for Rose. It says uh, Rose, I assume, I assume that that's what it is rather I bet the accent didn't come through on the E. Okay. says, get a flat tire during a five-hour race or have a squeaky chain the whole race. Oh, flat tire. Flat tire, it'll caught me. I'd take three flat tires over a squeaky chain the whole race. (laughs) A squeaky chain means you're losing like 15 watts. Yes. I can fix that flat faster than losing this. And I'll actually lose like uh, half my brain cells because of my brain cooking from hearing squeaky chain. I can't handle it. Just throw an ice friction chain on there. You won't have no squeak. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if, I bet we could have used those during Cape Epic every day. I mean, if we had unlimited money, uh, we do not, but that would have been sweet because boy, my going through all those mud puddles and everything else just destroyed it every single day. That was so noisy and loud. Uh, Tim says, (laughs) uh, Hey guys and girls, thank you for all that you do at trainer road. 
I try to spread the word to others to sign up. I'm a 36 year old male around 135 pounds, five foot four inches with an FTP of 217. That's down from 225 earlier this year. I saw a drop in FTP around September, having some fatigue. And he says, I've just been taking it easy and fun, uh, in October and just having fun on the bike instead of training way to go, Tim. Good on you. That's the time to do it. Right. Uh, my question is this, I'm planning on racing the 2022 O-Ram mountain bike race next year. Uh, for those that don't know uh, what O-Ram is, it's a popular race. Um, it's a uh, East coast race for the U S here. And it's the off-road assault on Mount Mitchell. I have friends in North Carolina that have talked about this race and talked about how ridiculously hard it is. Uh, it sounds really tough. It says it's a 60 mile, 10,000 foot elevation game mountain bike race. My question is what plan would you recommend and what kind of advice can you provide for a race like this? In the past, I've done a lot of cross country races in Florida that are 15 to 20 miles long, one to two hours and no real elevation gain. I've lived in Western, or he says, I think Western North Carolina, he put WNC for about a year and I've been working on climbing a lot and I haven't found a gear. I don't, didn't like yet living here. So it sounds like it's steep terrain. I know this sounds like a tall order, but this being my only goal for the year, I'm racing this to complete it, not to finish first. Now going into the new year and setting my goals up for what it, what I was to achieve. And I have spent some time looking at your plans for this. I'm not sure what plan would be best for this situation. Any direction would be helpful. And thanks everyone here for the great product. So this is like the classic scenario of this is going to be a long day. So part of you thinks that, okay, endurance work, but then 10,000 feet of climbing, and it's going to come in a lot of steep uh, pitches, uh, when you're climbing Mount Mitchell, it'll be really tough. So then you think, well, I need to be surgy and I need to be really punchy and I need to be able to do that. But punchiness isn't something that you can stretch out forever. And it isn't something you should stretch out forever, forever either. Um, you can't do like but you can't punch for six hours. It's not going to happen. Right. And a 60 mile mountain bike race where you have technical rocks and roots and everything else, this isn't just a smooth mountain bike course. So this is could very well take six hours or more. And this could be a really big and really hard day. So looking at that, you aren't going to be able to punch for six hours. You won't be able to do that. So you don't have to worry about that. Instead, it really becomes more predominantly aerobic. You'll be pushed over your threshold plenty of times, but really you'll be dropping down. You'll be spending the majority of your day as aerobic as possible. But this brings up a good point that I want to discuss. There's this sliding scale of duration being the X axis, right? And as duration increases, the profile starts to matter less. And what I mean by that is you can't rise to the occasion that the profile poses to you. Like if it's a short race and it's a bunch of punches, like Red Bull Bay climb is probably the best example of this, where it's just like one short climb. You can entirely specialize around one minute efforts or however long it takes. Right. But as it gets longer, you can't specialize for that. Uh, unbound gravel is a great example of this in the sense that you could look at unbound and say, okay, so the climbs are going to be all under a minute. Um, they're mostly, most of them are going to be even shorter than that. So I should just do cyclocross style training, but that isn't going to serve you well on a day. That's going to be 10 hours long, 12 hours long. So you have to consider that as the duration gets longer, the punchiness of a course matters less. And it's more about 
what you're going to be able to do, which is just ride aerobically for, for that period of time. And with that said, cross country marathon plan is where you'd want to be. It's still going to prep you for surges and it's still going to give you a ton of aerobic work in that. Um, and it's going to be pretty applicable. All that said, um, I want to get advice from, from you because, uh, Hannah and Alex mountain bike racers that do short races and then also do long races. Uh, so you kind of deal with this very balance. What advice would you have in this case for Tim? And we'll go Hannah first on this one. Yeah, I think that typically speaking for long, for really long races like this, I'm a big fan of the, I won't go over Mm. X metric approach. Um, you know, obviously you have to have some flexibility there. If there's a climb that is so steep that you can't stay under that metric, then just go as easy as you can get to the top. It's okay. Um, you know, but if you're not in your easiest gear shift into an easier gear and try and stay in that metric. So usually I like just having the ceiling approach, Mm -hmm. Um, because then if you're in a group or you're trying to stay with someone, you can look down and say, nope, this pace is too fast. I have to stay under this metric, but it doesn't create such a barrier that you can't surprise yourself. Mm. Um, because you never know what you're capable of until you do it and you've never done it until you do it. So I like creating some flexibility there. So usually I, I, beyond that, that limit metric, I, will just go based on feel of it's uncomfortable, but it's doable. Mm-hmm. It's sustainable, but I'd like to slow down. Um, usually those are those, if I'm hitting those thoughts in my mind, then I'm probably in a, in a pretty good pace. And I will check in with myself throughout the race too, and ask myself, is this sustainable? Yeah, but I wish I could slow down. <laughs> okay, perfect. <laughs> Keep going. Um, and, and when you're And when you're out there and you have those metrics set and that plan, remember that you're smarter before the race than you (laughs) you are at hour six in the race. So if you find yourself at hour six, yeah, maybe, I don't know. If you find yourself, I could see you doing this, Alex. For sure. (laughs) At hour six, at hour six, Alex is running some sort of equation in his head and he's like, hold on. I've cracked the code. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe I can do this differently. Exactly. (laughs) Somehow I think probably whatever math you did before the race is more accurate, but (laughs) I'll pass it off to Alex now that I've poked a little. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) This is definitely something. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm fine with it. Uh, My real advice to Tim would just be to work the course in your favor and know what's coming. Um, I liked the idea of like Hannah was saying, get into those, some, some of those situations beforehand, um, Florida from what I remember from what we sold there (laughs) for gearing is very flat. (laughs) So, so steep climbs, like even finding short, steep climbs and understanding like gearing and how that feels and how your fit feels and all that, just putting yourself in as many of those situations as possible. Mm -hmm. Like if you have a guess on your finish time and you we're far enough out and you want to see like, okay, I'm going to go ride for six hours and just see how that feels. Try my nutrition. Like as many of those unknowns, you can create knowns out of Mm -hmm. and, and kind of check those boxes. Then it kind of goes back to that arousal state too, is it lowers that stress level to where you can perform your best. Cause you're like, Oh, 
I've climbed 20% grades. Oh, I've climbed 10,000 feet. I've ridden 60 miles. Like, okay, I'm ready to throw all this together in one day and, and execute my plan. I know that with this race in particular, I've heard that the descending is pretty technical and pretty tricky too. And it's such a long day and you get so fatigued <clears throat> that it's really easy to make those mistakes once you get fatigued. <clears throat> I mean, what uh, Hannah is saying is very true. We are not the best mathematicians at the end of a six hour ride. We also are less proficient bike handlers. It is. Again, speak yeah. for <laughs> We're also less proficient bike handlers at the end of a six hour ride. So I think it's really important with your bike handling. I know that this, um, this isn't something that's likely going to increase your time substantially, Tim, but it will likely help you from losing a lot of time. Uh, and that's to get to the point where you understand bike handling from a principal's perspective, watch the video that we've done with Lee McCormick about bike handling. He talks a lot about position in a way that will help you make sure that you get two or three, three, the two or three things into place that will really profoundly help you descend when you are fatigued because you'll be in the right position. Honestly, being in the right position is so much of bike handling. It's it's a whole lot less about, you know, speed and strength and everything else as much as just being in the right position. So if you can guarantee that you'll be in a good spot, Hannah, the point you made is so important on long races, having that cap of saying, I won't go above this. Now, if you're racing for a win, it, that probably changes. But in this case, Tim has clearly told us that he's not racing for a win. He's racing to finish. And this is how you finish fastest is by capping yourself because your eyes will get bigger than your stomach and you will want to do efforts that are too hard and you'll push too hard in the beginning. And that really slows you down later in the race. So that is such a great point, Hannah, really good point. And that distinction is super important. Mm -hmm. And I think something that may be hard to stick to if you're anything like me, mm -hmm. um, you'll see everybody around you. You'll be at the race start, you know, you'll be like, oh, sweet. I'm going to stick to this guy's wheel. Like, and you start getting competitive and you have to remember that the fastest way from start to finish is sticking to your plan. Racing for a win is different because there's, you know, drafting involved and being in the front group and seeing things first. There's a lot of different aspects, but if you are truly racing for a finish and your best finish time, then executing your plan is what you can do best and try to do your best to stick to that plan. Yeah, absolutely. Anything else to add to Tim's before we move on to Steve's question and some live questions from people? Cool. You're smarter at six hours in. <laughs> I like that. Alex is going to have like a whole math course, the math that you can do on the bike. Um, Steve says, hi there. I've completed two low volume training plans in succession over six months. My race he mentions is a solo ride is in a week's time. Steve, uh, based on the time of your question, this might've already happened. So I apologize for too late, but just the same, hopefully this advice can be helpful for, uh, Steve retrospectively, and also for everybody listening, what stats should I monitor during the race to maximize my performance? How do I know if I'm pushing too hard or not hard enough during the ride? So let's first address the latter part of his question. How do I know if I'm pushing too hard or not hard enough during the ride? And let's answer that not from a metrics perspective, and then we'll get into the metrics perspective and how they, <laughs> sorry, Alex's brain just broke. He's like, I don't know how to answer that without metrics. I'll set this yeah. thing out. <laughs> but how, because that's a good point. How do I know if I'm pushing too hard or not hard enough during the race? Keeping in mind, this is a solo effort, right? So he's not, uh, he's not racing against other people because in the end, all data informs perception, right? And that's an important thing to keep in mind. So what do you hunt for, for perception? Let's say this is a long sort of ride. 
Hannah, this seems like kind of a basic question, but what sort of sensations are you feeling when you are trying to pace something well and it's a longer event? Yeah. Assuming that it's a longer event, I think it's pretty safe to say that if you can't, um, if you can't say at least one sentence, then you might be going too hard. Uh, you're, you're kind of crossing over that threshold in which you're no longer really working aerobically. That doesn't mean you have to be able to sing or hold a conversation, but if you can't squeak out a, a confident sentence, then, then you're probably breathing a little bit too hard. Um, and you're forcing your body to go more towards the anaerobic side, which isn't going to be sustainable long-term. Great, great advice. Now, Alex, bathe us in data here. What stuff do you watch <laughs> or do you look at when you're uh, looking for pacing things properly? What metrics are most important for you? Uh, ride time, lap time, power, lap power, heart rate, lap heart rate, energy out, speed, lap distance, and normal. He's looking at his hammerhead right now, his uh, head unit. <laughs> for those not watching. I put, I put as many as I can on the screen as it should be. No shock to anybody. But um, yeah, uh, just how long the ride's going to be. And I kind of just know my power curve in my head roughly. Um, also by feel, like Hannah said, it's also a great way to lose training partners, by the way. So don't talk too much <laughs> if you can. <laughs> yeah, what? Uh, it's just, yeah, like if you can kind of just feel like if you can go at that pace all day, especially on a, a big solo ride, then you're you're probably doing just fine. Yeah, we have a great um, blog article written by Jesse, who's in the live chat right now. And it's all about how to build a pacing plan for longer events. And we give you... Uh, uh, objectives or ranges to shoot for in terms of intensity factor. So that's a metric that you can enable on your head unit called IF. And that's basically, uh, it'll be represented as a decimal, uh, but it's basically a percentage of your threshold. So uh, 0.7 IF. That's if you can't do math. Six yes, <laughs> yes, exactly. So 0.7 IF would be 70% of your threshold. Now we know that in an ideal state, if we are absolutely perfectly prepared and everything else, we might be able to hold our actual threshold for an hour, right? Like, but that's why the hour record's so hard is because it's really hard to actually do that. But with that in mind, that's kind of like the benchmark for an hour. And then that trickles down. Um, it, this doesn't have a linear relationship. So as you, what you can, and Jesse's article will explain this really well. So we'll link below to that, but basically you'll be surprised that what you can do for 90 minutes, you can probably stretch to around two and a half to maybe even up to three hours. And what you can do for three hours or just slightly above, you can stretch out for a very long time. Uh, so you're probably, if it's a long event, you're going to be looking somewhere in between point six to 0.7, somewhere there. If you're really getting the most out of yourself, um, you'll likely be riding it less than that. If you're not looking to get the most out of yourself and just enjoy riding on the day. Um, but that's a really helpful one that I find for that. What about during races though, Hannah, which metrics do you look at for mountain bike racing in particular? I, are you the, I, I turn my head unit on, but I don't look at the head unit uh, in a mountain bike race typically, unless it's a long one, but do you, Look at metrics during XCO. During XCO, pretty much not at all. Yeah, I think it's it's too distracting and it's unimportant to me. I, as Alex said, if you're racing for the win, especially in an XCO, then 
if you're looking at metrics, it would only be for pacing and I'm not going to pull the plug if I'm going too hard. I'm just going to hope that everyone around me is bluffing too. <laughs> so I, 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 for short events, not at all for longer events. Um, truly I, I usually go by feel, but I do use the metrics for affirmation. So if I find myself in a group that feels too hard, I might look down and discover, okay, it's not too hard. You're overly aroused as we talk about, mm -hmm. talked about earlier. It's time to calm down. Or I might look down and say, oh my gosh, it is really hard. Everyone else must be hurting too. These sensations are valid. Mm -hmm. It's going to be okay. It'll slow down eventually. Um, so I usually are just using them for affirmation out there of my sensations. Yeah. When it comes to long stuff, uh, like when you were racing at BWR San Diego, what were you looking at on your heading or what important stuff did you have on there? When, um, I would say that, I mean, the biggest thing for me, honestly, is distance. Cause that's a huge motivator to me in races like that is just knowing how far along we are in the race. When I'm in the group, I'm pretty much looking at nothing because I'm going to stay in the group no matter what, because drafting is so critical that even if it takes everything I have for the next 20 minutes, I'm not going to get dropped because then it's going to take everything I have for the whole race. So I'm, I'm not really looking at anything, um, at BWR and specifically, I found myself off the front on the black Canyon climb, which was gosh, almost an hour long Ooh. climb. And that was a time when I sort of set that limit and said, okay, I'm, I'm not going to go above my threshold. It's an hour long. If you're, if you're going over threshold, you know, you can't do that. So I, I pretty much settled in around sweet spot for mm. that and just, and just figured if I can hold that, then if anyone catches me doing that good on them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, uh, the longer the race, the, I think the more I pay attention to IF and something like, which is basically what you're talking about, like, you know, the mm -hmm. overall pacing and I'll lap that on long climbs. If there's like, like a Leadville, another example for this, like I'll absolutely be paying attention on Columbine. I want to look at what my intensity factor is on, on power line. No, because uh, I'm just trying to not die and fall over. So, but on Columbine, I want to make sure I'm not going too hard. Right. Um, that's also time trials. I really look at my head unit, right? When I'm doing a time trial, not really a mountain bike time trial. And well, actually, yeah, even those, um, if it's something where it has like sustained power for a while or a longer climb, I'm absolutely looking at that. Cause it's really easy to go out too hard. I do that every single time I do any single bike race. I always start too hard, uh, cause I'm over eager and that always ends up causing problems. So in time trials, I'm very strict and I set my limits and I stick to that. And then usually what it feels like at the end of the race is that one thing at, at one point, it felt so easy to go over that power. And I felt, and I was questioning why I was holding myself to it at the end of the race. I'm like, how in the world, like, what can I do to hold on to this power? <laughs> like, like what sort of, maybe if I change my position slightly, I don't know. That's when you know that you're like pacing it really well is when you're coming into the, toward the end. And that's what you're feeling like. So, um, but I've really taken a step this year of stepping away from looking at metrics during cross country races. I used to look at them pretty regularly. And this year I had to learn to get rid of that. And I think it was helpful criteriums though. I am 
hyper-focused on, on time. Time is extremely important in a criterium because it's time-based cyclocross races. It would be really important too. And then in a criterium, I'm always looking at pace, uh, like speed and power. So, but speed is really important, especially if you're in a breakaway scenario, we've talked about this before, but if you notice that typically the field is riding somewhere around 26 miles an hour, and then when the gas is on, it's 29 miles an hour and pay attention to that. If, if you notice that the group cannot maintain that 29 mile an hour pace for more than three laps, then in your breakaway, you need to make sure that you can hold 29 mile, mile per hour pace for more than three laps. If that's not happening, your break isn't going to succeed, right? However, if you know that the group's average speed is 26 and you're rolling turns and you guys are carrying 27, you're just extending. So that is an important pacing thing because you can't always rely on vision and where you see the field and on the course that can be really, uh, that can be really helpful there, but it's all varying. Alex, do you have all those data points up for every race? No, no. <laughs> uh, I think it depends on the race. Like I'll use it if there's a pacing aspect to it, like nationals is a good example. There's one big climb and then it comes back around. So I pace the climb and then the rest is by feel. Um, but I think in all these cases, understanding the relationship between speed and power is super helpful. Like back to Steve's question on that solo ride, I would make a game out of like, can I go faster for less power? You know, like, can I, you know, get a little bit smaller on this descent or if I like bring my torso down, but do 20 watts less, like, will the speed go up and, and things like that. And that also helps in races, mm -hmm. right? Cause it's, it's not power that wins races. It's speed. Mm -hmm. It's like someone could do 400 Watts, but if someone else does 300 and gets there five seconds earlier, they win. So as much as power is helpful, I think understanding the relationship between power and speed, but yeah, I'll have data up if the like normally longer races have longer climbs, like Hannah was talking about with Belgian waffle ride. Like I definitely have power up for that climb just to, keep myself in check and like Tahoe trail Leadville, like a lot of those longer races have key mm -hmm. climbs and just to kind of understand where I'm at. But again, sometimes you just gotta throw it all out the window and mm -hmm. send it. Yeah. I think the, um, as time goes <clears throat> on, try to find the metrics that help you most and focus on those. And as you ride and race and gather more experience, um, don't be afraid to put lots of data points on there if that's what you want. And then over time you'll realize, Hey, I'm actually just paying attention to one or two or three of these. And that's what really matters to me. So, um, when like on my Garmin, I have the, like, I have a race profile, I have a training profile and I have a ride profile and my ride profile has like every possible metric I could fit onto all the different pages that I have just because that way I can view it if I want. Um, and that's when my Garmin's telling me how much I jump and stuff. And it's giving me that grit and flow score and all that other fun stuff. Right. But when it's the training one, it's super focused. I just have, it looks just like a trainer road display. Effectively. I have my interval time and then I have my, I had smooth power, which we, uh, Alex and I go back and forth and joust on this all the time. I tend to go to 10 seconds, <laughs> 10 seconds, smooth power when I'm doing interval work uh, outside, just because it makes it a little bit easier. And I chase the ball less. I'm like a less hyper dog. Um, but then when, and then after that I have heart rate and that's basically more or less it. And I see my workout profile and then 
Do you smooth your heart rate? <laughs> no, I don't smooth my heart rate. Alex, what do you use? Get ready. Three no, seconds? get ready. One, One second. Sec. Right? <laughs> Isn't that crazy? I would lose my mind. It is I like crazy. I, I do like three seconds. Yeah. Three seconds, absolute minimum. Um, that's like what I have just by default. Do you guys wish you had like three seconds smoothing heart rate then? Uh, I mean. But the it, heart rate is Yeah, smooth. it is. Like inevitably, because there's such a yeah. lag in the yeah. data. Do you wish your speed was smooth? <laughs> it's also smoothed out <laughs> because of physics. <laughs> but power is just, I, I'm amazed. Like power, power is definitely. He has physics. a he has like no. a um like a 10 core CPU upstairs that can process and make sense of just the number bouncing all over the place. Cause it would blow my mind to pieces trying to do interval work and look at that. I don't know how you do it. So I'm running calculations. <laughs> If I'm if I'm one watt over target and I'm halfway through, then I can spend the rest one watt lower than target. <laughs> and then simple when, math. <laughs> simple. Yeah. In the race side of things, I have my my pages set up. So my first page is my cross country page. The second page is my crit page, because that's the sort of racing I do most often. Then I have a TT page, basically. Um and then I also have another one that's just like uh that I think just has time and that's it. And then I have another one that just has time and speed. Um, so then that way, if I'm in like a breakaway and I don't really want to know like what I'm doing in terms of power, for some reason, I just want to know time and speed, then I can look at that. So, um, yeah, I feel like it's like collect, it's like selecting a Jonathan. Yes. Character. <laughs> see this like crit racer, TT Jonathan, XC Jonathan, XC marathon. Exactly. I like it. Yeah. I don't know how much crit racing I'm going to do. Honestly, after um, Tulsa Tough, I got super lucky and had like a minor crash uh, in a pileup. But after that, man, I was like, this crit racing thing, you know, it's pretty dangerous. But then again, maybe it was just Tulsa Tough. So who knows? Maybe I should race more crits. <laughs> uh, live questions. Should we go into a handful of them and then close it out? Uh, somebody says, Joey says, how's Nate doing after his concussion at Cape Epic? He's getting better. I think he's still probably on the road to healing. Nate will be on the podcast in the near future, which is great. Um, so that's good to hear. He hasn't been riding uh, his mountain bike much or anything else thereafter. Um, but yeah, so that's, that's where that's at. Another question too, where's Chad and, and Nate? So Chad was supposed to be on the podcast today, but they're, uh, renovating in their house. And it sounds like the contractors tore into the podcast studio and tore it apart. So, uh, yeah, anyways, so that's why Chad isn't here today. <laughs> you wanted a window. Yeah, exactly. Here, right? Yeah. Um, okay. Liam says, Jonathan, with your increasing carbon take, have you been increasing mixed concentration or is adding gels, et cetera, or additional bottles? Um, my liquid intake is typically, I try to keep it like in the winter, I'll take in 500 milliliters an hour, roughly, uh, in the summer, I'm taking in like 750 milliliters an hour. I sweat more. What are milliliters? Uh, yeah, sorry. Yeah. Freedom units. Um, uh, but that's, <laughs> that's what I typically, uh, do. And then I just keep my carb rate the same. So whatever size bottle I have, I typically take in a gel and then I typically take in 80 grams or upward, like 80 grams of drink mix. And then I'll take in on the gel somewhere between 30 and 40 grams, depending on the gel. So I just tried out the precision hydration gels, by the way. So I've been trying SIS's gels. They're, um, they're one to 0.8 ratio gels that they have like the beta fuel, the beta fuel. 
Those are so, so I've been trying good. those out. I've been trying out beta fuel as the mix and it's good. I, I find that it doesn't feel like I get as much, and this is total bro science, zero science to back this up, but I don't feel like I get as much energy from those that I do from Martin. So maybe I need to mix it stronger. I don't know, but I've also mixed a, uh, one to 0.8 mix myself. And I feel like I get more out of that than the one to 0.8 out of the beta fuel stuff, but you use beta fuel, right, Alex? Not the mix, just the, the gels off for me, but the gels are perfect. Cause I, if you think about it when you're doing a really hard day, especially in summer, what I'll do is like one scratch bottle and two SIS beta fuel gels and you get a hundred grams of carbs an hour. So it's pretty easy. And I'm not like constantly reaching into my pocket to get something also less wrappers. That's the so big thing going on five hour rides. Doesn't feel like you're going backpacking. Yeah, I don't want to add in more gels and then make my bottles just water because then I'm going to have pockets literally full of gels for just a four hour ride or something. So yeah, I think the main thing for me is I've stepped away from getting nutrition from liquid as much as I can, just so that I can control fluid, and especially in summer when I sweat a lot and have a lot of sodium Alex going is out. A high volume con- sweater, high sweat rate, and then also really high sodium loss. Um, so Alex is a, and also Alex is burning a huge amount of calories compared to the majority of us. So very unique case. Right. Um, and that's where Alex has had yeah. to arrive after trial and error and testing. So, so what I've found is like, if I was doing, like I used to do the Morton, whatever the 80 gram one was yeah. 320. And so what I'd find is if I wanted to drink more, cause I was more thirsty, I would just blow up mm-hmm. my carb intake. So now I pretty much only do water and scratch hydration mix in the bottles and then kind of just switch between those as I need sodium and water and then get my calories from blocks and those um sis beta fuel gels just nice because they're 40 grams of carbs in one gel and the flavor for me is on point not too strong not it's too also weak. really easy to take in compared to the martin gels because it's liquidy <clears throat> whereas the martin yeah. is much oh and an added bonus i got asked this on instagram but someone asked how i do like how i feel more without like littering, like in, I guess they were talking about winter, like with big gloves. And I actually like those SIS gels cause they're mm-hmm. quite tall and, and the, the rip section, I guess is long enough that you can kind of take a good bite out of it and the tab's mm-hmm. still on the top. So they, they were worried about like one getting it out, but also like littering at the same time if they couldn't get it back in. And I think that long packet helps quite a lot cause it's longer than yeah. my hand. So even with winter gloves, I like yeah. those. I, um, also pro tip, if you cut the top of your cliff blocks before you go red and throw away those tops before you leave, then it's just, it's kind of like you can just take as many out as this you is going to be a one upper moment, Alex. I apologize. I don't like one upping. Did you know that the package is actually the cliff block package? You don't have to cut anything. It's made so that if you flip it around and then squeeze at the bottom, the cliff block just pops right out. It's amazing. They showed it to us at cliff HQ and it's changed my mind. Pop, pop. Pops right out onto the road. <laughs> no, and... Like, uh, no, like uh, into your mouth. So, you know how it has a. Yeah, good, good luck with that <laughs> in winter. Now it has a long end. Let's <laughs> post a video of that. And, I will, I yeah. Will you know how it has a long end and a short like... end? Um, so, the short tab end is the one that's made to open up with just a bit of pressure. It's, I swear, it's amazing. We, we're, we're getting way too far down the <laughs> rabbit hole on this, but I don't know if I hit like the, the leprechaun gold pit. 
but my most recent package of cliff blocks, they've had seven in them, not six. They've had seven. And I thought I was going crazy and miscounting at first and getting like two and then four, but they've got seven blocks in them now. And I was like, Hmm, I wonder if they changed it, but the nutrition facts on the back still say they should be six. So I don't know who's trying to give me more carbs, but I'm wow. all about it. Check that out. Um, yeah. I feel like I got to take a photo, yeah. but I have like a whole set of packages with seven in them now and it's blowing yeah. my mind. Um, I'm the precision hydration gels are 30 grams each. They have a very faint, like lemon cream pie flavor to them, but they're good. I think they're a two to one ratio. I don't think they're one to 0.8. Um, but, hmm. uh, liking those, I'm just trying different things now, but honestly, it's hard for me to go away from just my custom mix and then Martin gels. I, I still, I think I feel like I get better energy from that. And I'm a bell, I'm as bell curve as it gets. So I don't have to worry about Alex and I want to drink more. I never want to drink more. It's hard for me to drink that 750 in an hour. So I'm spoiled. I don't have to worry about those things. So. That 25.3. <laughs> sure. Whatever it is. Yeah. Um, cool. Hannah, do you have anything to share on carb intake? I know that we just waxed a poetic on carbs <laughs> for too long. We're very yes. passionate. Uh, yeah, I think for me, so I have, I have a similar problem as Alex, but slightly different is I have a super high sweat rate, um, abnormally high, but very dilute. I don't sweat much sodium at all. Uh, so just plain water is pretty important for me. And so I try and get a lot of my carbs through more concrete, like still not like bars or blocks or something like that. I, I actually really like gels cause they're so convenient, but because of the osmotic effect of pulling in water to the stomach, it's already so hard for me to get so much water that it becomes a little bit of a slippery slope. So that's something I personally have to be careful with. And I try and get a lot of my carbs through, um, yeah, sources more like the goo chews and things like that. Awesome. It's cool. We have like all three ends of the, of the spectrum covered here, bell curve, Jonathan, and then not the other ends. <laughs> it's good. Uh, okay. Last question. This one's coming from Greg. He's joining us live and thanks to everybody for joining us live. If you're on YouTube now, give this a thumbs up, subscribe to our YouTube. This is not the last question, Jonathan. You skipped yeah, I, over the luscious hair question. Okay. So, uh, somebody asks, what hair products does Jonathan use Hold so out. luscious? And uh, I I don't know. I just used, I use, I use crew. I don't know. It's ba basic hair stuff. So I don't know if we can do it on YouTube, but you got to slow yeah, motion yeah, that yeah. if we can. Blessed with good hair, not good watts. Um, okay. Greg says, Curious about your experiences of going down to sea level from altitude. I'm currently at 5,500 feet and curious what sea level will feel like when I go back home. So, um, that, I have <laughs> that means that Greg is somewhere around like 1800 meters, I think somewhere around there. Um, what are freedom meters? units. Um, so, uh, but in this case, going down to sea level from altitude, I mean, I don't know, Hannah, you answer this one because you're you train and live around 4,500 feet of elevation, 5,000 feet roughly. Right. Um, you, so you and I are similar in this. Regard. Yeah. I, yeah. I live at 5,000 feet. And then in the summer, a lot of my training, since I'm in park cities closer to seven. Um, but yeah, living at five, I think I do notice a difference now that I live there going down to sea, sea level, I'll get 
you know, 10% increase, um, which is such an incredible confidence <laughs> booster awesome. when you travel to a sea level race. You're like, man, I peaked. So yeah. Well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I would say the biggest thing is, uh, that's only something I noticed after having lived there for a while. That's not something I grew up in Southern California and, or I, yeah, I grew up in Southern California. I would go other places to train at altitude for a couple of weeks and then coming back, it wouldn't be like, I'd noticed this huge bump just from being gone two or three weeks. Um, so I think unless of course you've been somewhere at elevation for an extended period of time, you might not see a, a huge bump other than you just won't be uncomfortable anymore if you never fully adapted anyways to that altitude. Yeah. Which is a great feeling. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the exactly. only thing I sweet, sweet yes. relief. <laughs> say, nothing like the two home. things I'd add to that is that you'll notice if you're on a road bike that uh you'll go slower than uh, for like a given wattage. Um so air's thicker a lot of the time, especially if you're by the coast and you know it's humid air. And you'll notice that. It's kind of weird. Like you you um for the same Watts, you can go a whole lot faster when you're in thinner air. Um, and it's like, and when I say a whole lot, I'm talking like, you know, one to two mile an hour. So it's not, a not like you're going way faster, but still, um, the other thing I'll mention too, I think to keep on brand, you got to use. Kilometers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, the other thing I'll mention is the fact that you can put yourself in a bit of a hole. So if it's a stage race and if your body's not used to producing, so you're capable of doing more work right? When you are at a lower elevation, so more readily available oxygen, your muscles just do more. But if your body is not trained to ride at 300 Watts for four hours, instead of riding at 260 Watts for four hours, that doesn't mean that your muscles just are totally fine with that. That that's harder work on your muscles and they will feel it. So if you're doing stage races, keep that in mind that you might feel more fatigue from one day to the next um, that is kind of balanced out too, by the fact that you recover better at lower elevation. So it's not like it's just a full net loss. Um, there is something helping you out there as well, but that's one thing I've noticed, uh, you, you can go deeper and then as a result, you do end up paying a bit of a bigger price <laughs> after the fact. So, but boy, it feels good. So, uh, okay. I think that covers it for this week. Uh, thanks for joining me. You two. It's been fun to have two pro mountain bikers as guests here. And now I should say just pro cyclist because you're doing a little bit of everything with this lifetime grand prix. So, uh, if you want to follow Hannah and Alex on Instagram, I would highly recommend it. Hannah shares awesome training tips. Alex shares tons of insights and he gives you the chance to ask him questions as well on Monday, which is really cool. That's his like little tradition that he does. Keeps, keeps me. That's right. And off. if you want to follow trainer road, we are constantly posting amazing content on there and you can give us a follow at trainer road. Everybody else's, uh, social handles will be in the description or you can see them on screen on YouTube, share this podcast with your friends and go sign up for trainer road to make it the strongest year ever. Remember athletes that were using trainer road and then athletes that were using trainer road with adaptive training they were 20% more likely to increase their power to weight ratio. That's super impressive. Um, and it's only getting better and better and better as more riders are using it. We're getting more data. It's only improving. So it's super exciting stuff. Go use adaptive training, get faster. We'll talk to you all next week. Thanks everybody.